From Accord, this is From Vendorship to Partnership, a show where we dive into the realities of scaling B2B startups. Join our host, Ross Rich, this season on The Seller's Journey as he chats with today's top sales leaders about building winning playbooks, scaling teams, and partnering with customers. We're going to be talking about how to drive more revenue, both ARR and NRR, through building very strong customer relationships. We're going to dig into both how to do that on a tactical level, some of our favorite tips and tricks, and maybe some what not to do's from our experience. And we'll also be talking about from more of that strategic, repeatable, consistent level, how do you build in some of those to your sales organization, to your success organization, demand gen organization, to make sure you're not just doing these things one-off and they actually stick with, with your company and organization. To kick things off, um, would love to hear you know this group's just overall thoughts, opinions of why you believe or maybe not building strong relationships with your buyers and customers is so important to customer growth. Um, maybe to hear a different opinion, because I feel like we talk to sales leaders all the time. Mike, we'll kick things off with you. Mike Marg, sorry. I'm curious to hear you know this opinion, then we'll jump to, uh, sorry, I should also mention, yeah, Christian, CEO and co-founder, Mike Clapson, VP of sales. So we're going to get a bunch of different perspectives uh, on the session, which I'm excited about. I think... I think the VC answer is strong relationships with customers always show up in new business and renewals. So that means ARR growth and net dollar retention. The stronger your relationships with your customers, the more they love you, the more they wouldn't dream of churning or wouldn't dream of signing past the day that they agreed to, the better your metrics will look and the better the company you'll have. So that's that's my viewpoint. Got it. And I think so, I want to I want to add to that. It's like I mean we always say this like and especially right now that's important, but it really is especially important right now because like, every company is having this conversation right now with like, much more scrutiny around what am I renewing, what am I buying. So you kind of you you're not there, but your champion is. So kind of like you, you can't be, but you want to be in the room where it happens. And to 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 quote. But uh, that's where your champion is. So the stronger the relationship, the more you get the information about what's being said and how are you being evaluated. So hmm. now more than ever. I think it's also important to understand like what's the basis of the relationships you're trying to form, right? Like some early customers will want to have a voice in terms of product direction and roadmap. Other customers are going to care about the specific use cases or value that you're creating for them. And that that's also going to differ based on kind of the elevation of the relationship that you have, you know, are you kind of at the project manager executor level? Do you have a kind of exec sponsor that you have a direct line to? And for me, that also pivots into kind of like multi-threading and having like a team-based customer-facing model where the execs are connected to peer level execs and your sales and success teams are connected to kind of like day-to-day champions of, of the solution. Totally. Yeah. I think all great points and different perspectives. I think personally uh, think about this maybe in, in three different ways. One, I just enjoy the job a lot more when I have like real human connections and relationships with, with prospects and buyers, whether they're going to buy the thing or not, or, you know, whether we're working together, it just makes the day-to-day much more enjoyable, especially when you're stuck on Zoom meetings back-to-back. Um, you know, having that um, 
you know, both business and personal relationship goes a long way to, to making the job um, fun to, to wake up for. Um, thinking about it from a courts perspective, we're, you know, a relatively new startup, um, so important. I think maybe even more so on the product strategy side of things than even revenue and NRR. I think the the deepest relationships that we've had have not necessarily, yes, it leads to the biggest deals and renewals and upsells, but I think the biggest needle mover for us has been the product direction. When someone cares, they're going to be thinking about your thing, obviously not as much as maybe if you're the founder of the company, but a lot. And if it impacts their role in a big way, and they're that bright type of early adopter and user, they're going to bring be bringing you ideas that are going to have a massive impact on your business and the long-term trajectory. And that's something that I've been really you know, surprised by. And lastly, thinking about it, maybe at a later stage company, like when I was at Stripe, some of these are really large decisions. It might not feel that way as a seller or as a selling organization, but these are really big decisions for that person personally, their social capital, they're going to bat for this. I think having that trust and that relationship of like, regardless of the product, regardless of how this goes down, we're going to be there for you and you're not going to look bad from working with us. And I think that's an important part that doesn't really come into play when you think about you know, what are the business outcomes that we're trying to drive towards? What are the success criteria? It's like having that trust is like, no matter which way this goes, you're not going to look bad. And I think that's one of the main reasons why people get worried about, you know, like Christian, you mentioned championing stuff. So those are a few thoughts. Yeah. Any, anything that uh, you guys want to add? I mean, nobody ever got fired for buying EBM. I think this was in the 1980s and you kind of want to achieve this for your company. And if possible, I mean, and I think the first step for this is do it with a few people that, that truly believe in that. Totally. Um, well, maybe before we jump to the next um, the next question that we had, I see um, Adar Adar, sorry if I'm mispronouncing your name, um, asked a question in the chat here. How do you evaluate which customers there is room for additional revenue generation? How do you prioritize which customers to focus on when capacity is limited? Who's the person in the organization to form relationships with? That is a great question. Anyone want to jump in here? I'm happy to take a first yeah, first pass. Yeah. I mean, to, to the extent that you have uh, you know good good data about organizations, depending on your product, whether it's user based or usage based, knowing what the gap is between what they currently own and spend with you and kind of the total potential of an account, um, and then also layering in, you know, if you've got two seats installed at IBM, you might mathematically have a large opportunity there, but you might actually be better off going for the mid-sized company that could adopt and spend more quickly than kind of your top tier enterprise account. So kind of also layering in like your average deal sizes and time to close on those types of opportunities. Um, but of course, taking a data-driven approach and then layering in judgment on top of that, right? That's where you're customer success managers or account executives can kind of start to stack rank and, and kind of prioritize their book of business. That's, yeah, I think a great perspective on that is what is the opportunity? Hey, if you can only work so many, maybe let's focus on the ones where we can land and expand into um, and have, you know, that long-term success with and measure that and map that against your ICP. Uh, totally makes sense. And and I yeah. think, that's a great question. And I think we don't always ask ourselves that. Like we we obviously only have limited time to, to work on our customers. And I think 
the, the the tendencies are always that we go with the one like the ones that are the loudest or the ones where they are the most problems and oftentimes we actually focus on the ones that are not as like, valuable to the organization so it's really the question uh what what has the biggest benefit and maybe it also means that i mean i need to dismiss a few clients where maybe the product isn't a good fit. So mm -hmm. I'm able to focus on the one where there's a huge fit and I can grow this quite a bit. I always have a hard time with these questions because the answer will always be specific to the org that you're in and the product that you sell. So there's a level of like translation that has to happen between anything we say and like what you actually do because your company DNA will be different. But at a high level, uh, evaluating where there's room for revenue generation. The two things that come to my mind are your sellers kind of scout that out through discovery. You assess, okay, what are the use cases that I think are sitting there for us to potentially take? Or, you know, where is there a disconnect between licenses I can sell you and headcount currently using the product? So I guess one part of that answer is your sales team scouts for that information. And the other is to Clapson's point, data you know, knowing when a company has a high, a strong Alexa rank or has a, a big employee count and they're not one of your bigger deals, that Delta sort of tells a, a story. Um, and then to prioritize which customers to focus on, that's a major, it depends. And then who's the person to form a relationship with? I think it is the decision maker, but also the, the users because uh, it's a political process, the decision to renew software. And if you have to double cross a bunch of passionate users who love your product, you're, you're going to get in a lot of trouble for re removing a piece of software. So I think don't forget about the end user. If you're a seller would be my guidance. Yeah. Especially nowadays where so many of these decisions are based on not just maybe, you know, the CRO, CMO, CTO type person, but that end user or frontline manager, which I think has been a complete 180 from five, 10 years ago um, with new tools, technologies coming out. And I think people leaving it to, um, you know, people further down the organization to make some of those decisions or judgment calls. Yeah. Don't, don't underestimate the kind of up and comer champion in middle management who wants to make proactive changes in their organization. Like that person is, is gold and, help them do their job well, and they'll do half your job, if not more for you. Yeah, I think maybe to round this, this question out, that's been one of the biggest surprises that we've had at Accord. I think you'd assume, so we have you know this collaborative workspace between buyers and sellers, drive deal velocity, win rates, et cetera. Would have assumed that that was a CRO, VP of sales, very tops down decision. Hey, this is the process we're going to do. I, I would probably say four out of our five largest accounts have come from either that frontline manager or a team lead, an individual rep who is bringing this to their organization. And I would have never guessed that if I was like hypothesizing, wasn't in the market, that that would have led to these largest land and expands. And I think, yeah, people tend to get really excited about seeing, oh shit, is the SVP of sales that wrote in whatever, like you should be chasing down especially those people that are reaching out to a potential, like to an Ashby, to something that's a recruiting manager or sorry, just like an IC recruiter, that person is probably the best recruiter on the team because they're thinking about the stack that they want their team to be. They're a huge influencer and they're going to help maybe even pilot or use it to start. I think that's where I've seen just like huge change in my mental model. You know, before I was at Stripe, it was very tops down. Like, 
a developer isn't going to pick changing out how you accept 100% of your payments revenue around the world. But, you know, in, in especially in, in SaaS, where you can get started with something smaller, that's been a really, really cool learning. I don't know if you guys have seen similar things at your organizations. I think so. I mean, I think Mike Mark can talk about PLT and I think there's a general PLT motion, but there's also a PLT motion for large enterprise deals. And I think the main reason what we've seen, so like, there's so many SaaS tools being bought over the last few years that like, at the beginning we bought the tools and then we realized that they actually weren't used. So because it was a top down decision, like the, the VP of sales bought it and then the AEs didn't use it. And that's basically, that was the second phase of the learning. And so that's why now everything is all about adoption. And the best way I can generate adoption for the tools that I buy as let's say a VP is by actually having already committed uh, frontline folks who say, I wanna use it and I'm gonna use it. And I think that's why more and more, this is a signal that everybody, that, that needs to be in a purchasing decision. There's a good question from Sean in the chat around what activities and processes are most impactful for building relationships and driving expansion. Um, John, my my initial take is, you know, it, it classic. It probably depends on your customer, but uh, anything that helps them create value from your tool, and that might mean getting all of the right people on the product. It might mean deepening their maturity of usage, but usually it means. Uh, helping them achieve an objective um, that they have, you know, part of the reason that someone brought your solution into that organization. If you think about it from the lens of like an internal case study, what would you want them to be able to turn around and tell other people at their organization of how it's helped them do their job better? And the specific activities that are going to help you get to that point are going to be pretty unique to the solution that you and your team sell. Yeah, to get get really tactical there. I think one, one tip that we or thing that we've been doing recently that have helped with maybe to the point around, it's like a, a front, a top, you know, maybe it's the top uh, recruiting manager and they reach out, they have a conversation, um, you know, with, with one of your reps, uh, Mike at Ashby, and it goes really well. They're like really plugged into the strategic initiatives. They're trying to make this change because the old system or spreadsheet that they're on doesn't make sense. And one thing that we've done is early, early on in the conversations is have a note go from myself or our head of sales to their leader and say, hey, no ask. Really impressed by Sarah who reached out and had great thoughts on, you know, where, how, how, how this is going to impact the candidate experience, how this is going to help with, you know, specific one, two, three initiatives that, you know, you figured out in discovery, excited to chat when it makes sense type of thing. That's where we found the relationship building for both the frontline champion who's getting this amazing shout out, who's going to get like a Slack ping or something in, in their, their team meeting around like, holy shit, going above and beyond and trying to up-level the team, as well as building that relationship super early on with the potential budget holder, signer, decision maker. That's something that we've seen with this kind of bottoms up motion be a good way of bridging that early before any ask. But curious to hear if you've done anything similar, thoughts on that kind of tactic. I think that's a great one. Uh, I guess it depends on new business versus like existing accounts with driving expansion revenue uh, from like a new business standpoint. I love that if you've, if your team has engaged someone that's kind of at the project level, having an exec reach out to a peer exec with, with no ask, you know, before the worst as a VP of sales is getting brought in to just negotiate on a deal. And it's like, Hey, it's the first time we've met. 
let's roll up our sleeves and see if we can figure this one out. And so getting looped in early and saying, I'm here for you guys, just wanted to say it's awesome that you're taking a look. And if we can be helpful, that's that's tremendous. And then on the expansion account side, like making sure that you're, hey, now that your team is using our product, want to make sure that we're checking all the boxes at the kind of functional level, but also aligning to the strategic priorities. So mapping at multiple layers of the organization, especially for those bigger deals, key customer accounts, like making sure that you're as multi-threaded as possible on an ongoing basis. Yeah. And figuring out what each individual person cares about. I think in a B2B deal, we always care so much. Okay. Like we solve this problem for the company, but the company is actually individual people. So mm -hmm. what like we, we work with say like typically involved the sales, marketing, customer success, all three stakeholders care about different things. So what is it exactly for this person that I want to build a relationship with kind of like I'm always like the mindset shift is always from B2B is really also like a relationship with individuals. So what can we learn from B2C? And so it's about figuring out what each individual cares about and then helping that they achieve these goals. Totally. Yeah, I found a lot of people, especially maybe earlier in their SEALs or success career might get really tied into that like company level why, and it's unheard by maybe the individual's. And that's why I mean, we're having a session around like building relationships. Relationships are not about how we're going to build this, this just business partnership. How are we going to help you do your job better? And that's what leads to that overall change and figuring out what the right messaging is to different people, um, you know, as you're kind of working that, that multi-stakeholder deal. But uh, yeah, Mike, Mark, you're curious to hear how this may be overlap with either your days selling or, you know, in the very relationship driven VC world. Yeah. I mean, I learned sales from a guy named Peter on who was so focused on building relationships with end users and champions and that it was suitable for the type of sale we had at Dropbox, which was very bottom up, mm -hmm. but we embrace sort of the advantage we have. Like we have all these passionate end users, go make friends with them and learn about them and take them to coffee. I think that's evergreen advice. Yeah. I, it's funny because when you sometimes think about it, maybe from like, a CAC perspective and like how much is a user worth and we're doing these, you know, one-on-one -on -one sessions early on or onboardings. I think the math, like we don't have a great equation for how that pays off for the dark social of how that could help get that next, you know, 50 K account, or if they change companies that, you know, X number of those people, when they go to a new one could be bringing your, you yes. know, your solution there or driving great usage. So when you renew or you have a cross sell opportunity, I think there's this very old school way of thinking about those metrics and very open if anyone has suggestions of how to look at this today, I haven't, you know, other than just kind of intuition, there's no really great way of measuring that like eight or nine out of 10 and 10 out of 10 excitement from those different stakeholders and relationships that you're building. Yeah. I think there's so many, like there's so many ways because it's actually also across the funnel, right? Like uh, we talk about champion lifetime value versus customer lifetime value. Like previously it was all the, the lifetime value of the company. But if I have a lot of champions in that company or a lot of users and they change their job, then I turn them into customers again. So actually this individual can become my customer several times over. So I think that's actually one of the ways we track it. And like, what's the what's the maximum lifetime value of one individual that that, that we've achieved there? Sorry, Mac, Mike, for cutting you off. And then maybe one more thing. I think you also want the more people that scream when it comes to the renewal and someone says, we're gonna turn the better. You want, you want a lot of screaming happening there. Yeah. 
at Ashby, we have a lot of, uh, you know, earlier stage startup companies, series A, B type companies on our platform. And, you know, people, people move around a lot and there's, you know, even if your initial deal sizes with these companies are relatively small, of course, the businesses themselves can grow. Um, but the secondary benefits of people going from company to company and, and specifying the tools that they want to use, like there's at least equal part value in that over, you know, a five plus year time span. So if you're doing the, you know, CAC on a per company basis and your deal sizes are three grand a year, it might not look fantastic if you've got a sales team that has to run those cycles. But if you look at the secondary benefits, uh, the math really does check out. Yeah, I forget what the quote was from. I think it was from from impossible to inevitable. They're talking about kind of early stage math and ROI of signing deals and your first customers. And I just that's something that I think we, I need to remember more often is like, yeah, how those multiplier effects. And then you see those, you see that in your pipeline, you see that in the deals close, and you're like, X percentage of this is just from those outsized individuals versus when you look at the usual pipeline that you're probably doing, hopefully every quarter or half or year of like how many MQLs and SQL, like it doesn't end up following that format at all. It's very, you know, outsized based on, you know, the relationships that you're building with, with key, key folks. Yeah. As we were talking about this, there was another kind of adjacent thought on my head is like, we think of salespeople and success folks as like responsible for building relationships. Um, but any interaction that a customer has or a prospect has with your company forms their kind of impression of your business and your brand. And so I'll give two discrete examples. Like if they reach out to support, what is the type of relationship that they get? You know, do they get someone knowledgeable who can resolve their issue promptly um, or if they're, you know, reaching out and, um, you know, getting someone like, for example, even a lot of companies will have like a BDR do kind of a qualify meeting. If someone's like, Hey, can you just show me a quick demo? And the BDR is like, no, you know, I need to gather some information. And like, then we'll see if you're worthy of talking to someone who actually knows our solution. Like all of those things inform the type of, you know, relationship that you want to have with your customers. And so like we arguably over-invest, you know, anyone who reaches out to us will be able to get to a product knowledgeable person on the first conversation, mm -hmm. whether they're a co-founder of a three-person seed stage startup, or they're someone at a, you know, 1800 person soon to go public company. So all of those angles matter in relationship building with customers and building like the type of relationship you want to have. Totally agree and very hard to do at scale, which might be a good shift from some of these tactical things to like, how do you build an organization that outside of, you know, maybe the folks that really believe in this that are doing themselves, how do you get that to the five, 10, 20 plus people that you're bringing on? And how do you make that a part of the culture and process? Um, something that we're trying to help with at Accord, but it takes a lot more than obviously a platform and, and processes, it's part of the culture. I'm curious to hear, you know, some of maybe the, some of the best teams that you've seen or how you're trying to do this at your own organizations to build a, you know, the real repeatable motion around delivering those outsized, you know, impacts from whoever, whoever the, the customer prospect is. Um, yeah, Mike, yeah, if you want to keep things going and yeah, curious to get your take on some of the things that you've done to build that muscle into your organization. So I think probably most applicable for this question at like larger scale. So uh, I joined Slack when it was about 70 people and left when it was about 1800 or so. 
and uh, for a couple of years ran an enterprise sales team focused on the West. Um, and we covered about $50 million of, of customer accounts. And, uh, you know, key to building this was like having clear swim lanes. Um, but also, again, I'll, I'm, you're going to hear this, me repeat this, but this like team-based relationship model mm -hmm. uh, so that the AEs and the CSMs and the sales managers kind of all understood like, what is, what is the account plan and who are we respectively trying to engage at what point in time towards what specific outcomes? So I think there's like a planning element and then there's this like multi-threading piece. Um, and, you know, if you're operating at scale, there's certainly like a systems visibility piece. Uh, Salesforce would probably call it customer 360. But like if there's support issues with an account, you need to know that if you're trying to, you know, reach out to an exec to establish mm -hmm some form of relationship, right? Like you can't build if they're like, hey, why aren't you helping us solve the the issues we've been having? Yeah, um, that's a tough conversation to have. And it's definitely happened in the past. We're like, guys, I know about this problem while you're trying to cross sell me this thing. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. So I think it also is about um, like, when are you building this relationship? Like if it's about, okay, now I want to upsell that organization and that's why I'm starting the, the relationship and reach out to other people, like to the, to the bosses or to a different department, then it's too late. I think when we talk about the strategic things that we are doing, um, we, we map out the organization to see, okay, who else is there? And then we start already reaching out and I think Ross, you said without any ask, because we reach out without any ask there. We just built the relationship because ultimately it's a relationship. And this means it shouldn't be like obvious that I'm reaching out because I need something. And we do this at every stage. Like we do this right at the beginning when we start the sales conversation to look at the full picture of everyone that's there that could benefit from the solution. We do it during the CSM motion right at the beginning, who else in the organization could benefit from this. But then also when they change their job, like the first thing we do is not hey, bias again, but rather like, noticed you, you're now at a new organization, congrats on this, and thanks for working with us here. So we built this relationship right at the beginning, even, even if the organization they join is not a target for us, but it's a relationship that ultimately will pay off at some point. Yes, something to add. I think um, a lot of times when you deploy an account, you have no idea how much usage is happening in that account. Like I think VCs pay a lot of attention to Dow, Wow, Mao, uh, math. So just understanding like how many daily actives, how many weekly actives, how many monthly actives, what are the ratios? And it seems like CSM teams should almost be as obsessed as VCs as like how much activity is happening in these accounts. Because if activity is sagging in a, a given account, you should identify that as soon as possible and intervene. And I just feel like there's so much signal that I don't know if a lot of sales orgs are in good position to capture. Yeah, it's it, it's hard to do, especially if you're, I mean, I think like uh, Mike's initial thoughts around like the team collaboration, that's something that we've been talking a lot about at Accord as we build out our CS function after, you know, first starting with sales. It's really hard when you're kind of spinning both up and changing a lot of things to have that alignment and to have the right metrics and then to come in at the right times and have that collaboration. It's like, hey, we're going through the onboardings, implementations and certain accounts that we want to, you know, drive activation on and re-engage. And then we're closing these new accounts. How do you have the, even the bandwidth and the, you know, the slack to then go back and work together? 
and but with that but that's what's required to build great partnerships and all the stuff that we're talking about i think that's one of the most challenging pieces is that cross team collaboration are we looking at the same data when do you even have the time to talk about this stuff let alone action it um i think that's some that's some of the really hard hard stuff where i think really just great leadership is required um to have that like next level thinking um behind just what's you know what you're being reactive to there's a tools piece here too right like first step is you need to have visibility into the key metrics and usage of your product. So like I, I've been at a few startups and the timing to implement that, like the more PLG you are, probably like day zero, the more enterprise you are, probably it might be something you can push down the road a little bit, but having visibility into key usage patterns, um, like for example, when, when Marg and I were at Slack, like we knew that if a company got to like three weekly active users and I forget the number, some 20 or 30 messages sent like that, that was an inflection point for that workspace to actually be sticky and continue using the product, right? So there's mm -hmm. thresholds that need to be reached. Um, and if they didn't reach that threshold, they were very likely to kind of go back to whatever they were doing before. So like knowing those and being able to see usage in the customers, I know we're going a little off topic, but that is critical and then you know which accounts to invest in in terms of building uh some of those relationships i think the the best tactic here is always like we think it's a it's a sales tactic or a customer success tactic it's actually a product tactic like, like as you said you figure out what are the metrics that that drive then the adoption and then you actually go to the product team and see okay how can i make sure that our customers the signups reach these metrics mm -hmm. That's again the hard part is the cross. You know, if it was just hey, the sales team close them, get them to do this thing, easy. If it's just the success team onboarding them, doing this, easy. Or the it's when it all touches each other in these unique ways, and there's no, you know, no matter if you've done it previously at different types of companies, it's so unique to that market, to that persona, to that experience, and that's you know that's something that's I've been a big surprise to me um, is just how no matter the playbook. That you might have seen before how unique it is to every single new um, product market persona space um, well before we wrap things up since time is flying by um kate had a really awesome question um, around when things might not be going super well what do you do then um, the question was what do you think of the concept that if you turn around an unhappy customer they're likely to remain loyal for longer i completely agree with this if you're able to identify that right when it happens, right when the bad thing happens and you show that you really care, amazing opportunity and everyone can understand that maybe you didn't see it before. I think that is a quickly lost moment and needs to be jumped on right away, whether it's a new customer, something happens or whether it's an existing one and kind of have a drop off. But yeah, curious to hear how this might have been shown, how this might show up in, in some of your businesses. Um, yeah. Mike, Mike Mark, go for it. So I'll, yeah. I just want to shout out, uh, Connor Fee taught me this lesson. He was the CRO at Clearbit and someone I learned a ton from in my career. Um, and he's awesome. If anyone gets a chance to work with Connor, take it. Um, but we had this account, a seller on my team sold a big deal and it just wasn't going well. The deployment wasn't working. And Connor kind of took us both aside and huddled with us and was like, Hey, this is like our time to shine. Like if we can turn this customer around when they're like super mad at us, they'll love us even more than they would have 
if everything had been smooth sailing. Because I think it's, it is a trust building moment where you can prove, hey, we have the empathy and understanding to like hang with you, hear you out, you know, and, and properly address your concerns. And now, so, so we did all that. And I think after that moment, the customer said to themselves, okay, if I ever have a, a, an issue, I'm going to be talking to the CRO and I'm going to be talking to like three people on the sales team. And I'm going to be talking to an engineer. Like you just see what type of support you actually get. So I, I totally agree with that concept. I think it would add to that um, figuring out why they're unhappy and it's if it's actually something you can solve. Like are they unhappy because they had mm-hmm. the wrong expectations about the product or are they unhappy? And, but they should actually be happy based on what your product does. And because ultimately you can't save everyone if they signed up with wrong expectations or, or have different needs than what the product solves. But if they, if they should be happy, but they're unhappy, then that's, I think, where it's like, how quickly can I identify this and how many resources can I use to, to try to make them happy? Yeah. Is fixing it going to be short-term painful or long-term painful? Um, and if it's going to be long-term painful, maybe you shake hands and, and part ways. But if it's like, we can do a thing in a finite amount of time to like get this on the rails and then be great for both parties, then it's probably worth whatever the short-term pain is. Yeah. I, um, I mean, we recently came up against something that was a challenge I think we're, we're trying to turn into an opportunity, which is, hey, summer slowdown. We promised to get folks up and running with these things and struggled to get the ops person for the Salesforce integration and struggled to get this middle manager book to roll out their team. And it's like, hey, you know, this was the goal we aligned on, et cetera. And, you know, we had to be like, totally right. This is probably two, three weeks behind where it should have been. And this is going to be, and just all jumped in was like, hey, what's the roadmap that we're giving them that says, hey, from this day, we found this problem. In, in 30 days from now, what's it going to look like? And what's the world? What are we all promising and jumping in on? I think that's um, that's something that people will be like, oh, shit. I, I, this wasn't actually as big. What they said was like, oh, this actually wasn't as big of a deal as I made it sound like. Now they're like, it's totally cool. Like, we're going to get this done. They feel they were just worried about kind of what we talked about earlier, which is if I'm making this decision, especially to buy something that's newer, that isn't the buying the IBM or buying the Salesforce CRM, it's it's their reputation on the line and they just want to make sure that you're going to deliver on it. Whether these hiccups come, they know this happens in their business every single day, especially customer uh, facing teams or go to market teams and um, just, just show up in that strong way. I love that example from, from Connor fee. And I've actually chatted with him about some stuff. Super, super bright guy. Um, Well, any parting thoughts, words of wisdom, Christian, any big takeaways either from this session or just how you kind of approach this at, at your company. Uh, yeah, I mean, just generally, we talk about relationships, um, and and relationships just means we talk about humans. So once again, always going to B two C and like humans, like they make they make decisions as a comedy. They they change their job. So it's ultimately long term relationships, not with one person, but with several people. And I think that's that's really what what user terms like what we do internally, what we actually do as a product, where we we help you tell you who is who is everyone that you should care about who's the whole buying committee um who are the people that that you don't know about but you actually should and you should involve so we tell you the whole picture and then we tell you if there are any changes to this who gets promoted who gets uh who who leaves who goes somewhere else so that you can continue focusing on this relationship within the existing company and wherever this person is going next Totally. No surprises that that has been a very high ROI thing for a lot of companies. And we're actually excited to, to kick off with user gems very shortly here and yeah, double down on those, those champions that we're investing a lot of time building yes. uh, that sadly, inevitably 
jump to other jobs. Uh, yeah, Mike, Mike Clapson, any, any kind of big takeaways from this session or others around just learnings and how building strong relationships helps with that ARR? Yeah, you know, I think I've mentioned it a few times. I really do think about relationship building as kind of a team team sport, especially if you sell kind of a, a true enterprise solution and then having a willingness to kind of truly create value for your customers ahead of aiming to capture that, you know, more so in the PLG side of things, but really understanding the use cases and the goals of your customers. And as you support those, you'll see revenue kind of as a fast follow. Totally. Yeah. That's always the tough balance of like your business and want to capture revenue and customers, but you also know that that comes from providing value and, and that, that balance there for sure. Mike Marg, any, any big takeaways from you or things to leave the audience with? But one thing in the back of my head is a series of tweets by Pete Kazanji. Um, if you don't know Kazanji, he's the CEO or oh, I'm sorry, co-founder of uh, Atrium. And he's been tweeting like, take your customers to drinks, like just take your customers out to drinks, take them to coffee, uh, catch up with them. Like basically like you just play like man to man defense on your customers and prospects and just stick to them and don't quit sticking to them post-sale, like upon renewal midway through the contract. I just think it's, it's very simple at the end of the day. It's just like a hyper focus on anyone that you have as a customer or that you want to be a customer. And that tends to work better than taking a, a, a painting by numbers approach. I think to, to add to that, I think Jason Lemkin said, I've never lost a client I've visited. And I think it falls in line with that. Especially proactively, not just at that, you know, annual newer meeting, like forget that go 60 days in, Hey, how's it going so far? How can I make sure that this onboarding and this experience is going to be incredible before that. I, I totally agree. I think we can get a, uh, very caught up in and you need the, you know, the metrics and the shared understanding and alignment and data for all those teams. But it is very simple at the end of the day. And you can cut a lot of corners from just showing up as helpful partners and adding value in even ways outside of what your product does. That's going to put you in that position to be top of mind when they have this new initiative. And how does your company fit into that as the solution? Yeah, and you kind of only get one go at a sales cycle and you only get one go at someone being a, a happy or an unhappy customer. So it's almost like that. It's the paranoid mindset of let's assume this goes off the rails and now I have an opportunity to time travel back to prevent it. Like, what would I do? You know, it's, it's just there's such dire consequences to not converting on a good opportunity that you just have to keep racking your brain and just outmaneuver if, if you can. Totally. Um, well, this was a, a very fun session. I appreciate everyone joining, both tuning in live, who's listening to this now, and especially um, the amazing expert panel here who have, you know, learned some of these lessons through some hard fought deals and lost renewals and um, all that good stuff. And yeah, how important it is just to, you know, be that great partner providing value. Um, and, you know, kind of continuing to get better at that every single day for your unique go-to-market motion. So appreciate everyone joining. Um, thanks a ton. And uh, yeah, hope this was a, was a helpful session to, to tune into. You're listening to Accords from Vendorship to Partnership. For more sales and startup insights like this, please be sure to subscribe here or at inaccord.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening.